Before we get started, I just want to let you know this episode is going to be a bit different. Uh, I'm not going to say how exactly. Let's see if you can tell what the differences are and leave a comment below for any changes you think I made. Of course, you could also not do that and just enjoy the show. That's fine, too, but it's up to you. And if this is your first episode of the show, then first off, welcome to the Twillerverse. And of course, you won't notice anything different. But if you want to leave a comment anyway, like take a stab in the dark to see if you can figure out what's different, that'd be a fun experiment too, I think. <laughs> anyway, enough babbling. You're here for the Linux news, so let's get to the show. From the Destination Linux Network, I'm Michael Tunnell, and this is your weekly source for Linux good news. And this week in Linux, episode 159, recorded live on July 10th, 2021. On this week's episode, we've got a jam-packed episode for you with distro news, app news, gaming news, and even a bit of drama. We're going to check out the latest release of Linux Mint, Proxmox, and VZ Linux. Plus, we've got some Ubuntu news to talk about. We've got some interesting news from Tor, and we've also got some uh, really cool script that I wanted to show you that I found for running Windows apps via Proton. Then we've got some news about Jim Whitehurst stepping, her, stepping down from IBM as president, and the topic I know everyone is expecting me to cover, which I will, is of course Audacity. All that, so much more, coming up right now on This Week in Linux. Uh, first this week, we're going to talk about Linux Mint because the Linux Mint team have announced the release of the latest Linux Mint version 20.2, which comes with either Cinnamon, Mate, or XFCE editions. If you're a current Linux Mint user, the upgrading is now available to do from Linux Mint 20 and 20.1. That's it for Linux Mint 20.2. If you'd like more, you can... I'm just... I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Linux Mint 20.2 is the second point release of Linux Mint 20, which is based on Ubuntu 20.04 LTS. Linux Mint releases in a regular pattern of six months or so, but it does this based on a single LTS of Ubuntu. This makes it easy for people to upgrade because the core system doesn't receive big changes. And due to this, the Linux Mint 20.2 shares the same kernel as Linux Mint 20 and Ubuntu 20.04, which is Linux 5.4. Depending on your preference, this could be a good thing or a bad thing. You can decide that for yourself. However, with that said, if you need to update the kernel, it does have hardware enablement uh, HWE kernel options with Linux 5.8 and Linux 5.11 available to install. Since Mint has three different editions, we're go not going to be talking about all of them because we're going to be able to cover all of them. So we're going to focus on the Cinnamon edition. For those interested in the Mate or the XFCE editions, you'll find links in the show notes. Linux Mint 20.2, codename Uma Thurman. Nope, that's not it. Just Uma that's the code name, has received a lot of updates and features, especially to the Cinnamon Edition with the inclusion of Cinnamon 5.0. Cinnamon 5.0 uses less memory than earlier versions of the desktop environment thanks to many important memory leak fixes. You can also set a memory limit to control how much system memory Cinnamon is allowed to use while running. This means that if you set this and the desktop reaches that limit you set, Cinnamon will restart. This is not the cleanest solution as described by some people in the community, but it is a solution, so it's nice to see that they're putting effort into improving the reliability for their users. 
Also to improve performance, they they are now doing some other changes to the desktop, such as being having the desktop now being able to uh, better detect power state changes, such as low battery, and the new on-demand usage of the Cinnamon screensaver. Now this is interesting because the screensaver daemon used to run constantly in the background. In Cinnamon 5.0, it will now only run on-demand when the screensaver needs to be activated. This results in a net minimum gain of about 20 megabytes of RAM, and if you have like a, a lean computer, like minimum specs and that sort of stuff, and up to a few hundred megabytes of RAM on some computers. Personally, I was not aware that was how it used to work, but I'm happy to see this has been addressed because, you know, the more RAM available to you, the more you can crank it up for FPS in an FPS. Get it? For those that don't, uh, frames per second in a first-person shooter game. Okay, fine. I won't try my hand at stand-up comedy. Though, for those watching the show, I am standing, so maybe that counts. I'll stop now. The Mint devs also made many improvements to the Nemo file manager. Improved search features such as support for regular expressions, recursive folder searching, and can be configured to show uh, favorited files first in the results. That's a very nice feature. Uh, Plus, in addition to searching file names, they state that Nemo can now search file contents for the matches, which is pretty interesting. Actually, I'd go as far as saying that's pretty dope. There's also a new shortcut added to that lets you toggle the dual pane mode in Nemo using the F6 key. Now, I would rather just have seen that to be the F3 key because it would be then consistent with Dolphin's dual pane mode, which has the same, has the F3 key. I know that's not really important, but it would just be nice to see some shortcut overlapping more in the Linux ecosystem. Anyway, now let's talk about the update manager tool. There's a lot of new features and some controversial things. In episode 141 of Twill, we talked about some concerns people had with the Mint update manager potentially forcing updates on users. And uh, the Mint team stated back then about the update manager, they, there's a, in a quote, it says, uh, in some cases, the update manager will be able to remind you to apply updates, and in, in a few of them, it might even insist. Now, we still don't know what exactly they meant by insisting. I couldn't find anything related to that in the latest updates, uh, or that particular piece anyway, though I might have just missed it. So if I did, please let me know in the comments. There's also some cool stuff to talk about with the Update Manager too, not just the controversial thing. Uh, It's now possible to update Cinnamon Spices, which are applets, desktop widgets, themes, and other extensions for the Cinnamon desktop. Uh, They've also improved the update notifications, such as decreasing the frequency of updates, alerts after it have been that the updates have been installed, and providing users with more options to hide and configure notifications about updates if they choose to do so. The Mint team states that by default, the and I quote, by the default, uh, the uh, update manager also only counts security and kernel updates as being relevant for notifications, but you can change that in preferences. Last but certainly not least, the update manager can now be used to manage. Uh, flat pack update preferences such as disable them or pausing them when a device is running on battery, which is very nice. Also, Linux Mint comes with flat pack and flat hub enabled by default, which is nice to see. And I just wanted to make that clear. Some distributions don't have flat hub by default, but you know, it's really nice to see when it is. And there's good reasons not to, you know, some distributions have provided reasons like, you know, uh, licensing and that sort of stuff, but it's just nice to see when it is. A couple of new applications included in the Linux Mint 20.2 release is Bulky, a new bulk file naming uh, file renaming tool. 
Uh, that's really nice to see. Uh, there's a lot of other options for bulk, bulk renaming, and I think that that is a, an, a type of application that is, you know, doesn't get the attention that it deserves because this is very handy for for me anyway. Maybe not everybody, but for me, I've I've needed a renaming bulk renaming quite a few times. Uh, one of the cool things about Dolphin is got it built in, but that's not relevant. I don't know why I went up in that tangent. Sticky Notes is a new Sticky Notes application, which is a replacement for GNote. A new version of Warpinator, the file transfer tool that Linux Mint makes, now supports Android and allows you sp- to choose the specific. A network interface that you would like to use for file sharing. And finally, Linux Mint 20.2 introduces the new NVIDIA Prime applet, which lets users switch between onboard and discrete GPUs. It also apparently works with AMD chipsets, so that makes it kind of a confusing name, but still very cool. If you'd like to learn more about Linux Mint 20.2, check out the links in the show notes for the Cinnamon Edition, the Mate Edition, and the XFCE Edition. Next up in the show is the release of Proxmox 7.0 Virtual Environment. Proxmox, for those who don't know, is a commercial company offering specialized products based on Debian. In this case, Proxmox 7.0 Virtual Environment is based on Debian 11 and includes support for ButterFS and ZFS file system as highlights. Some other highlights are, like I said, Debian 11 Bullseye, but they're also going to be using a newer kernel for the Linux 5.11 kernel. They're also going to be using LXC 5 or 4.0, QEMU 6.0, OpenZFS 2.0.4, and they've also changed uh, Ceph Pacific 6.2 as the default, though Ceph Octopus 15.2 remains supported for those who need it. Uh, ButterFS storage technology with sub-volume snapshots, built-in RAID, self-healing via checksumming for data and and metadata is available in this release, which is awesome. I'm a big fan of ButterFS. Uh, Also, there's a new repositories panel for easy management of the package repositories with the GUI. Uh, Single sign-on is available in this with OpenID Connect uh, and QEMU 6.0 and so much more. Uh, And I've dabbled with uh, Proxmox a bit here and there, but if I'm honest with myself, I'm not the best source for details on this subject specifically. If you'd like a much better breakdown of Proxmox as what what the values of it are and you know, like the pros and cons and that sort of stuff, as well as many other great open source virtualization related topics, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux Network's very own Pseudo Show because they made a fantastic episode where they talk about Proxmox, Libvirt, Cockpit, Overt, Cubevert, and so much more. So check that out. I have a link to Proxmox 7.0 and a link to Pseudo Show episode 29 in the show notes. And actually quite fitting because the pseudo show is all about enterprise open source and all sorts of stuff like that. We're going to talk about enterprise Linux again this week because last week we talked about enterprise Linux being more interesting these days. And well, we got another one. So VZ Linux, a product of Virtuoso International GmbH, is a free and open source distribution, which is another rebuild of RHEL. This distribution's latest release joins the other CentOS alternatives at the 8.4 stage. The new features of VZ Linux includes a LibreSwan IPsec VPN now supports TCP encapsulation and security labels for IKE V2. Sometimes initialisms get the best of me, but I'm going to power through. The NM State Network API for hosts is fully supported in version 8.4. Ansible modules are available for automated management of role-based access control, or RBAC, and in identity management, or IDM, 
such as the Ansible role for backing up and restoring IDM servers, and Ansible module for location management, and a lot more in in VZ Linux 8.4. If you'd like to learn more about VZ Linux 8.4, then check out the links in the show notes. And if you want to be the first to watch my upcoming video about Enterprise Linux, that is going to be very useful to a lot of people who are curious about what's happening with CentOS. Check it out. Subscribe to the channel because very soon, very, very soon, the CentOS saga, Keeping It Rail, will be coming to the channel. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean recently announced their new managed MongoDB service, which is a fully managed database as a service, or as I like to refer to it as DeBoss. With managed MongoDB, you can focus more on the building scalable, high-performance apps and less on maintaining the database. Simply offload your MongoDB administration to DigitalOcean and let them handle the provisioning, the managing, the scalings, the updates, the backups, and security of your clusters. It handles basically everything. And it's awesome because DigitalOcean built this service in partnership with MongoDB Inc. And together, they have ensured that you will get access to all the latest releases of MongoDB document database as they become available. And as a listener of the This Week in Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free. Actually, better than free because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 free credit when you go to do.co slash dln mongo. Again, that's do.co slash dln mongo mongo to get started with your $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's new managed MongoDB service. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux. Up next in the show, we have a topic that I think is quite interesting related to Jim Whitehurst as stepping down from uh, as being the IBM president. So after IBM acquired Red Hat for $34 billion in October 2019, the then Red Hat CEO Jim Whitehurst was named IBM's president three months later. Most IBM and Red Hat analysts assumed it was only a matter of time before Whitehurst would take over the top job of IBM CEO. Well, apparently not. This week, Jim Whitehurst announced that he will be stepping down as president of IBM. The former IBM CEO, Ginny Rometty, has said that at the time that the newly promoted CEO, uh, Arvind Krishna, was, and I quote, the right CEO for the next era at IBM because he is a brilliant technologist who has played a significant role in developing our key technologies such as artificial intelligence, cloud, quantum computing, and blockchain, end quote. But interestingly enough, a lot of people didn't take that seriously. Uh, Krishna was seen as an interim CEO, and Whitehurst was expected to take over once he had gotten the handle on things at IBM. Why, you might ask? Well, Whitehurst is known as being a dynamic leader. His record first at Delta as COO and then as Red Hat's president and CEO has been, as a lot of people stated, outstanding. Under Whitehurst, Red Hat became the first billion-dollar Linux company, and soon after that, Red Hat became the first $2 billion Linux company. At IBM, under Whitehurst's guidance, in the fiscal year of 2020, IBM's total cloud revenue of $25.1 billion went up by 20%. Much of this was driven by Red Hat's cloud, uh, hybrid cloud programs, and Red Hat itself saw its revenue go up by 18%. Cle- clearly, Whitehurst was doing a great job for IBM's bottom line. At the And with the news that Whitehurst was stepping down, IBM's stock price kind of dropped a little bit by about 5%. While in the long run, the market expects IBM to be fine, there's some uncertainty right now in the short term, which is quite interesting. It's also interesting that this was done 
Uh, the announcement for his stepping down was done on, Ju- on the July 4th holiday weekend, which some have suggested that it may be this was like a, a way to minimize the impact it would have had on his departure. I don't know how much it minimized it, but maybe it did. So Jim Whitehurst is a person that I've admired for many years, uh, not just because he helped Red Hat grow, but because he was a CEO that adjusted his, his mindset uh, to the Red Hat and open source culture rather than trying to you know change it to his way of thinking, which is something that is it's a very uh, valuable thing to have that kind of a person in charge to be who's willing to you know look at the way it currently exists and see if that culture is worth keeping and that sort of stuff rather than a CEO jumping in and changing things like the way they want the company to work and that sort of stuff like so many other companies have had happen in the past. So Whitehurst said that he started off in Red Hat thinking that he would need to whip it into shape, but what happened was the opposite. So his mindset and approach to being a CEO was changed by the Red Hat culture, which I think is the reason that a lot of people were hoping that Whitehurst would become the head of IBM because it would be so interesting to see what would it be what he would do with such a large platform. Now, it's not doom and gloom for IBM or Whitehurst. I'm sure uh, Jim Whitehurst will be will land on his feet just fine. And as for IBM, it's been around for over 100 years, and they've made a lot of pivots throughout that time. So I think it's fair to say that they'll likely survive just fine. But I will say that I'm slightly disappointed by this news because while I don't fear for Red Hat at all, because I think Red Hat's culture and structure is strong enough, as well as IBM has let it act independently since the acquisition, so I'm not really worried about that. But I was really excited to see what could have been, and we're not going to be able to see that. So that's unfortunate, in my opinion. Anyway, if you'd like more information about this topic, you'll find links to some articles, some interesting articles from ZDNet, as well as Yahoo Finance, in the show notes. And yeah, Yahoo Finance does still exist. You'll find links in the show notes. Next up, we got some Ubuntu news in, in what I will be calling the canonical corner, purely for the alliteration value. Up first... Let's talk about what is expecting to be coming in Ubuntu 21.10 in late October. So coming in 21.10, Canonical was going to be shipping a new installer with a UI built in Flutter, which is interesting to see how that works out. Ubuntu's community-based design team have chosen to uh, change the default theme uh, to a Yaru light. Basically, they said that the mix theme is too much work to maintain, maintain, this is unfortunate because I think the mix theme looked rather good. Uh, so I, I get consolidating effort does sometimes make it is a good idea. Uh, but I am a little bit disappointed because it, it did look quite good. So also in 21.10, a ZST compression or Z standard compression will be enabled for the main archive. This was announced to be planned to be done in 2018 and now has made it to the distro, which is great. This will make Ubuntu 21.10 installs faster than 21.04. We don't know how much faster, but I'm looking forward to seeing the benchmarks for that. Another important feature for 21.10 is that Wayland will be enabled for NVIDIA users. That's right. I said Wayland by default for NVIDIA users. Ubuntu 21.10 currently uses GNOME 40 as well as the default desktop experience, though it is expected that Ubuntu 21.10 will be shipping with GNOME 40, but we'll see what happens. And also thanks to OMG Ubuntu for the screenshot that I'm displaying for the current look of 21.10. Also, OMG Ubuntu has also reported that there might be a new logo coming up at some point in the future because they, in a, in a blog post on the uh, Canonical's 
uh, latest design and web team blog post. There is some screenshots that sh- indicated a new potential uh, logo, logo change. Uh, Canonical's Anthony Dillon reveals that the brand team is working on new logos as a part of a wider visual revamp, uh, affecting many of Canonical's products and services. And if you're watching the video version of the show, then you will see the potential new logo right now. But if you are listening to the MP3 podcast version of the show, I'll have a link to the OMG Ubuntu article about this in the show notes. Also, the final Ubuntu slash Canonical topic for this episode is kind of weird. Something I never thought I'd say on this show, but Canonical has been recognized as a finalist in Microsoft's 2021 Partner of the Year Award. So it says that uh, the Microsoft Partner of the Year Award recognizes Microsoft's partners that have developed and delivered outstanding Microsoft-based solutions during the past year. Awards were classified in various categories, with honorees chosen from a set of more than 4,400 submitted nominees uh, from more than 100 countries worldwide. Canonical was recognized for providing outstanding solutions and services. How did my award... um, person type announcer voice work. Is that that good? Anyway, Canonical has said and done some odd things in the past, but for this, I don't know. Uh, yay, I guess. If you'd like to learn more about any of the topics covered on this Ubuntu Canonical Corner section of the show, links in the show notes. The Linux Foundation have announced the Open3D Foundation to help foster 3D game and simulation technologies. As a key part of this new Open3D Foundation, Amazon's Lumberyard Game Engine, which started off based on CryEngine, will be the the basis for a new engine called the Open3D Engine, or the O3DE. So Amazon previously made Lumberyard available on GitHub, but with a proprietary license. Not so good. This Open3D engine is open source and made under the Apache 2.0 license, which is great to see an open source engine from the Lumberyard work because they were going to essentially Amazon kind of willed it to this this foundation because they were not going to be making it anymore. So there's that, which is good news because it's not going to waste. They also say that this engine is unencumbered by commercial terms and will provide the support and infrastructure of an open source community through forums, code repositories, and developer events. O3DE, with this updated Lumberyard code, has a new multi-threaded photorealistic renderer, an extensible 3D content editor, and other modern features. There's also a lot of companies involved in this effort with this uh, Open3D Foundation. So let's do a rapid-fire roll call, starting alphabetically. Uh, Excel Byte, Adobe, Apocalypse Studio, Audio Kinetic, AWS, Backtrace.io, Carbonated, Future Way, I think, uh, GamePock, GenVid Technologies, Hadian, Here Technologies, Huawei, Intel, International Game Developers Association, or the IGDA, uh, Kitbash3D, Kathira AI, Niantic, uh, Open Robotics, Popcorn FX, Red Hat, Rochester Institute of Technology, Side, Side FX, I like that name, Side FX, uh, Toffee, TLM Partners, and Wargaming. I know, I, okay, it wasn't rapid fire, but it was fairly quick. I just had to make a comment about the Side FX name, because that's fun. That's a good name. I like it. Anyway, also, 
uh, great to see that Red Hat is in there, as well as many other companies like Intel and, of all things, Adobe. That's cool. Uh, so also there's been a lot of work in uh, the efforts to uh, expand the engine across multiple platforms because the interesting thing about this is that the Open3D engine effort right now it requires Windows and Visual Studio. But to be fair, that's mostly due to Amazon's lack of Linux support as the Linux work Amazon did for Lumberyard was just for the server. Of course it was. But with that said, I can confirm that the frequently asked questions on the Open3D Foundation website, which is o3d.foundation, uh, states that Linux support is planned as well as support for macOS. If you'd like more information about this topic, you'll find links to the announcement from the Linux Foundation as well as the o3d.foundation website in the links, in the links, in the show notes. That's how that works, in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com slash DLN. Bitwarden is an awesome piece of software. It is a password manager that allows you to have peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. How does it do that? Well, it provides tools to store all of your passwords in a secured vault, auto-generate those passwords and passphrases for you, and even automatically fill in those passwords in login forms so you don't have to do that, which is fantastic. And... In addition to that, it works on across many types of devices, such as your web browser, your mobile apps, desktop applications, and even on the command line if you want to do that. Bitwarden seals and encrypts your private data with end-to-end -end encryption before it ever leaves your devices, so you know you're the only person with access to your data, because it encrypts it in stores like a, a big mound of gibberish on their servers, so in order to get the actual data, you have to decrypt it, and therefore only you have access, which is awesome. So go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. And I think you want to check out their premium, premium account because they have a lot of great features on their premium account. And it starts at less than a dollar per month. You get one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator for temporary one-time passwords, priority customer service, and so much more. And if you have a business or a part of a business, you can sign up for the business account or the enterprise account and get a ton of other great features, including having the ability for the enterprise side to customize the way that your employees' accounts work. And the employees of these websites of these companies get their own individual account as well as being able to be participating in an organizational vault, which is so cool. And it's very handy to be able to share passwords back and forth inside of your company. And you can even do this in an organizational family level, which is fantastic. So if you want to, you know, your kids or your spouse uh, be able to share passwords back and forth in a secure way, you can get Bitwarden with the family account, the business account or whatever. And there's so much awesome features in Bitwarden. So check it out. Make the smart move like many from the community have and go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring This Week in Linux. Proton is a wonderful piece of software. And for those unfamiliar with Proton, it is a emulation slash compatibility layer for running Windows-related software and more specifically designed for gaming. Proton is created by a partnership between Valve and Codeweavers, and it has changed the face of Linux gaming by a lot, making it for the better by a ton. It's, it's, it's possible to play all sorts of games on Linux that I never expected to be able to, so awesome. And also, in theory, it should be possible to load Windows applications via Proton. 
But how would you go about doing that? Well, the next topic on the show is a script that makes it fairly straightforward to launch Windows programs via Proton. You just make configuration changes to the script to tell it where your Steam folder is, make another folder to run the environment in, and then you're good to go. And I tried it out myself and happy to report it worked quite well. As you can see from the video version of the show, you can run the portable version of Notepad++ inside of Proton with this script. Reddit user XORainbow mentions on the Reddit post that it has only been tested on some simple applications and not anything too complex, so it may not work for you, but it's still very, very interesting. In my testing, it worked on every app I tried, but keep in, keep in mind, I only tried about three applications. Uh, and one, I did find an issue with one of the applications that I tried it on, which is related to my production keyboard. If you're looking at the video right now, you'll see the keyboard. I'm holding it up in the video in the visuals. So this is an awesome keyboard, but it does have a downside. And that downside is that this keyboard requires Windows to configure it. The data is then stored directly on the keyboard though. So I can still, once I've configured it, then I can use it wherever, which is great. So I have been, I've had to use a virtual machine. I actually haven't configured it in years, but still it does require Windows. I try to configure it through this script and it did load the application just fine, but the keyboard, so this, this script, not script, this application that in order to configure the keyboard requires the keyboard to be uh, plugged in in a, a configuration mode. So you have to activate a, a mode special for this application uh, to be detecting it. And sadly, it didn't detect the keyboard. So unfortunately, I wasn't able to actually modify the keyboard's firmware uh, through this, but... If anyone has any ideas of how I can make that work, I would love to know. In fact, you'd be make my day if you could tell me. So uh, please leave a comment in the sh in the uh, below or on the DLN forum if you have an idea of how I could fix that because I really, really want to stop using VM for that. That'd be awesome. If you'd like to check this out for yourself, check out this script for Proton. I'll have a link in the show notes below for the Reddit post. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about the Tor project, and more specifically, the Tor browser 10.5 has been released, and also something else that I want to talk about, which I find very interesting. But first, let's talk about the Tor browser. For those who don't who are not familiar with Tor project, they provide tools for internet privacy and anonymity. And the Tor browser 10.5 release is a major update, and it's all about improving the experience for users living in uh, countries where the ISPs censor the internet, which is not cool but it's cool that this browser exists. So there you go. Starting with this release, there's a new system that defeats internet censorship called Snowflake, and it's now able to work as a bridge. What this means is for censored users is that they can now use Snowflake as a pluggable transport relying on proxies run by volunteers to connect to the open internet, which is awesome. Also, Tor Browser 10.5 adds support for Waylon, which is great to see, and includes updates the uh, Secure Drop HTTPS Everywhere update channel. It implements uh, basic crypto safety and adds a uh, don't bootstrap startup mode as an option. And if you'd like to learn more about the Tor Browser 10.5 release, you can check the show notes for a link to the release page. Also, there is another Tor-related thing that I wanted to tell you about, which is called Arty. The Tor project has announced a rewrite of the Tor protocols in Rust, and they're calling this Arty. 
It is not ready for prime time just yet, but based on a grant from the Zcash Open Major Grants, or ZOMG, uh, there is significant work that is ongoing right now for this rewrite. The plan is to, uh, you know, basically about trying to bring RD to production quality client implementation over the next year and a half, they say. The C implementation is not going away anytime soon, but the idea is that RD will eventually supplant it. The project says that they see a number of benefits from using Rust, and I quote, For years now, we've wanted to split Tor's relay cryptography across multiple CPU cores, but we've run into trouble. C's support for thread safety is quite fragile, and it's very easy to write a program that looks safe to run across multiple threads, but which introduces subtle bugs or security holes. If one thread accesses a piece of state at the same time that another thread is changing it, then your whole program can uh, can exhibit some truly confusing and bizarre bugs. But in Rust... This kind of bug is easy to avoid. The same type system that keeps us from writing memory unsafety prevents us from writing dangerous concurrent access patterns. Because of that, Artie's circuit cryptography has been multi-core from day one at very little additional programming effort. End quote. So this is quite interesting because there's a lot of people talking about Rust these days, especially with like uh, the Linux kernel getting some effort putting in going into Rust language and a lot more uh, like some funding from different uh, projects or different companies for the Rust Foundation and a bunch of other work. It's very very interesting to see what's happening with the you know the Rust ecosystem and especially with Tor because Tor is a very very valuable piece of software. And also just real quick about the. Uh, Z-O-M-G cache, the Zcash Open Major Grants thing. Just to give you quick details about that. This is uh, from the Zcash Foundation, and they say that it's uh, it exists to fund projects that advance the usability, security, privacy, and adoption of Zcash, a privacy-focused cryptocurrency, as they describe it. The Zcash Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit focused on financial privacy funded by donors. And it's interesting because it's a cryptocurrency and they're using this uh, as a way to help fund the uh, Tor uh, project's efforts into doing Artie, which I am uh, happy to see because this kind of thing is something super interesting related to uh, Tor. And if you'd like to learn more about this or any of the topics that we've covered in this Tor section, then I'll have links in the show notes below. Audacity, what you doing? Signed. The community. Okay, so this topic is kind of problematic, and I wanted to lighten it up a bit, so I sang a little. Okay, fine. I'll just stick to covering news. Audacity is back in the news this week with some concerns from people regarding their new privacy policy. These changes are problematic at best, and for a quick summary, they have added policies that state that they will be doing a personal data collection, may send data to law enforcement agencies by request, and even a piece about not being able to use by minors under the age of 13. So there's a lot to unpack here, and uh, we're going to try to, I'm going to try my best to unpack it. Uh, But first of all, uh, now it is possible uh, and likely that these changes in the privacy policy are more of an issue of copy and pasting like a boilerplate policy, but that in itself doesn't bode well either. Because why would you publish a boilerplate policy, especially after already receiving backlash from previous decisions and that sort of thing? So what exactly has changed in their privacy policy? Well, this relates specifically to the desktop privacy policy, uh, 
And it says in section two, what personal data does Audacity collect and why? They say that the very, the very limited types of personal data that we may collect about you and the reasons why we process it are as follows. And as a general comment, our app does not require you to create an account or profiles, and we do not ask you to provide us with your name, contact details, or any other direct identifiers. So uh, that's a quote from the privacy policy. Now let's talk about what is in the uh, personal data collected here. First of all, why they collect it, they say that it's uh, app analytics and improving the application. The data that they collect is uh, OS name and version, CPU data, uh, non-fatal error codes and messages like project failed to open and that sort of stuff, uh, crash reports in brake pad mini dump format, as well as user country based on IP address. Now, the thing, those kinds of things on the surface don't really seem like a big deal. They are, you know, very commonly uh, detailed information, especially like the user country based on IP address. It's different if it was the IP address itself, which it is. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, but the the part that has a lot of people that were you know questioning this uh, uh, privacy policy update is the part where it says that they uh, the legal grounds for processing could also be you know given to law enforcement agencies. So it says data necessary for law enforcement litigation authorities request if any. And also legitimate interest for a WSM group to defend its legal rights and interests. WSM group is the, the company that owns the Muse group, which owns the uh, well, acquired uh, Audacity a couple months ago. Now, this stuff that's interesting is that I'll get to in a second in more details, but the Muse group responded to this saying that it's not for request. It's only if they're compelled to give the data over. But we'll get to that in a second. I just wanted to clarify that one piece. So the next section, section three, is talking about minors. It says the app we provide is not intended for individuals below the age of 13. If you are under 13 years old, please do not use the app. That's weird. Like it's the reason for that is the COPPA compliance of the uh, for children of collecting data on children. That's illegal without permission from the parents and that sort of stuff. So the easiest thing to do is say that this stuff is not for anyone under 13 because COPPA compliance is not applicable if you are 13 or older. So that's probably why that's there. Now, why is why does that matter? Because the data isn't identifiable to even know that they're 13 or under or under 13 really? I, whatever. But uh, that's a very weird thing, but also at the same time, the prop, the bigger problem here is that this could be a violation of the GPL because there's supposed to not be any restrictions in the GPL for this, any, anything really. So the fact that this is kind of a restriction, but it's also saying, please do not do it rather than you're not allowed to do it. I don't know. Anyway, moving on section four, who does audacity share your personal data with? Now this part I found quite interesting because it has some categories and some classifications that it lists out specifically, but then subsection five of this part, that made me go, wait, what? It says, subsection five says, to any other person if you have provided your prior consent to disclosure. Then what's the point of having these other least specific listings if you're basically saying to anyone else too? I mean, that's basically saying everyone. So, uh... Anyway, it's kind of weird, but it does seem like boilerplate type of language. So 
let's check out the response from Muse Group. So the response from Muse Group is as follows, and I quote, we believe concerns are due largely to unclear phrasing in the privacy policy, which we are now in the process of rectifying. In the meantime, we would like to clarify what we what seem to be the major pain points of concern. So first of all, talking about selling data and sharing data. They say that we do not and will not sell any data we collect or share it with third parties full stop. Then why do you have an option to be able to do so? That's, you know, anyway. Uh, the data collection, also, they, they comment about this part, saying that the data we collect is very limited. IP address, which is pseudonymized and irretrievable after 24 hours, which basically states that in the privacy policy, it says user, ba user country based on IP, not the IP address itself, whereas this says it's the IP address itself for 24 hours. We'll get to that in a bit again. But also basic system info like OS version and CPU type and that sort of stuff. And then the error report data is optional, sent manually by users as a part of an error report. And they say that we do not collect any additional data beyond the, beyond the points listed above for any purpose. Now, this, the error report data being optional is definitely a, a, a good thing. You know, you, if you want to send the data, you want if you have an issue and you want to let them know about it, it is good that they have that as an as available as a as a thing to be able to do. Uh, and it's also good that it's not automatically happening when it does it because you get the choice. And I like that. The part that I don't really like about their response is the IP address part, because it basically says that the IP address is uh, is collected and not synonymized for 24 hours. And then once that 24 hours is up, it's synonymized and irretrievable at that point, because what that means, if you don't know what synonymized means, it, it it's kind of like taking making it unidentifiable so it, cre it creates a hash for this particular data and then you can use that da that data to reference so it's referenceable but not identifiable which is a lot a thing that a lot of um, software does and a lot of uh, websites do and that sort of stuff which in my opinion is fine to do as long as it's not identifiable for any particular purpose but it seems to be only doing that after 24 hours which makes me wonder why even collect the IP at all if you're just going to, you know, just do it immediately rather than doing it 24 hours later. It's kind of weird. Anyway, regarding the compliance for law enforcement, they write, and I quote, we will not collect or provide any information other than data described above with any government entity or law enforcement agency with these little qualifiers saying compelled by court. Data is not shared upon any agency request we will do so only if compelled by a court of law in a jurisdiction that we serve. The, also, there's a limited window for this data. After 24 hours, the IP address being collected is irretrievably, lo irretrievably lost. Why do it for 24 hours in the first place? Uh, jurisdiction requirements. We operate in many countries around the world, and this is a standard policy requirement for providing services in many jurisdictions, regardless of the depth of data collected or nature of service. Now, that's not actually true. In order to do a service, regardless of where the, the jurisdictions are, you can just not collect the data and therefore not have to give it over. Or you could collect data that is irrelevant to identifying anyone and then give that over and it doesn't matter because you can, you know, the OS name, the amount of people who use an OS, what CPU type that thing, that's not necessarily valuable in like a whole scheme of it, unless you have like a lot of data that you can kind of sort of do fingerprinting a little bit, but the amount that they're saying is very limited. And in theory, 
would not be practical for fingerprinting. Um, so that's kind of weird description, weird justification, but there you go. Uh, also the compelling by court that is better, but the privacy probably still says request. So, you know, uh, proofread, I guess. So this is an interesting situation because there's various different, uh, responses related to this topic. Some people have classified this as spyware, and that's not remotely accurate. Spyware is something that you're not aware of, and it's taking data without your permission, and it's taking data automatically, and it's also doing something a way that is negative towards you. Now, that's not what's happening here, because one, it's not doing it without your your consent because it asks you, do you want to send this data when you start the program? And then also it's not on by default. So it's not automatically happening. It's not happening without you saying it's happening or allowing it to happen. And that, and they also have it publicly on their privacy policy. Now, I don't think they announced it. I think someone just found it. But still, it doesn't make it spyware. So just to be clear, it's not spyware, even if it is a little weird anyway. Now, the reason why, in my opinion, this is just my opinion, and I guess uh, speculation that this created such a weird uh, reaction from the community, not weird, but a weird situation with a expected reaction from the community at this point, is because it's not the first strike that Audacity slash Muse Group has had in this particular kind of thing. The reason this has garnered the kind of reaction from the community that it has, in my opinion, is because you know, this was Muse Group acquired it two months ago. They acquired Audacity two months ago. And less than a week after the acquisition, Muse Group submitted a pull request to the GitHub repo to add telemetry to Audacity. And it seemed to be a lot more data. And also, the, tele- the, the telemetry, while was opt-in as well, it did have some things that people didn't like about it, such as sending the data to Google or Yandex. That did not go over well, as you might imagine, for the community. And a few days after the backlash happened, the Muse Group responded saying that they would close the pull request and go back to the drawing board about this sort of topic. And this seems to be kind of saying that they're still going to do it in some degree, but they're going to be doing it in a self-hosted manner, which is better, and also limited in what they're taking, which is also better. But again, they're doing it in these weird kind of optics situations. So the first one was the telemetry... I think like four or five days after the announcement and the, uh, but then in this one now, which is like the third one, but the second one, well, that one is a little bit more problematic, but we'll get to that in a second. First of all, I want to give you the information about the response from the muse group about the telemetry part. They say that telemetry is strictly optional and disabled by default. No data is shared unless you choose to opt in and enable telemetry. Telemetry only works in the builds made by GitHub CI from the official repo. And uh, if you are compiling Audacity from source, we provide a CMake option to enable the telemetry code. This option is turned off by default. So there is, you know, the to be fair to them, they're not doing it in the most nefarious, malicious way possible that some people have described it as. And I think it's not necessarily, you know, I, I don't think it's fair that people are describing it that way, but I think that it is worth, you know, mentioning and giving their response as well because I want to give both sides of this kind of thing. But I also want to say that I don't think telemetry 
is automatically a bad thing anyway. It can be done properly. It can be done well. And if you want to learn more about this topic in that sense, uh, we're going to talk about this on Destination Linux in a more discussion aspect because I think this topic, you know, it deserves a little bit more more uh, discussion about you know what's going on more so than just news coverage. So we're going to talk about that in Destination Linux. So be sure to check it out uh, tomorrow, dealinlive.com. And uh, but next up, the reason why I think the biggest problem, the the most likely of issues, was the CLA or the Contributors License Agreement. That got a lot of backlash from the community. So. What it basically means is that um, in order to contribute to Audacity, you need to sign a license agreement in order for your code to be accepted. Now, there's a lot of companies and softwares that, that have CLAs and uh, agreements for contributing. And some of them are great in the way that they do it, such as the way that Red Hat does it. And because it's basically just an agreement saying that you agree that the code will be open source and uh, always open source and that sort of thing, which is totally fine. There's also other ways where they basically say that you agree that n- at no point could this be relicensed without, um, you know, both parties agreeing and that kind of thing. So those are fine. but And some of them go way too far. Some of them actually require you to hand over all of copyright and all power and whatnot to the the people who are facilitating the agreement, which is not in my opinion, ideal, but that happens. But as far as Audacity goes, they state an interesting way, uh, a couple of things they say is that Audacity source code is currently released under the the GPL V2, or the GNU General Public License Version 2. We intend to update the license to GPL V3 to enable support for new technologies not compatible with GPL V2, such as VST3, which is compatible with GPL V3. Now, that is a reasonable reason to you know want to you know do that action to update the license, but you don't need a CLA to do that. You can just say, "Hey, we would like to update the license," and have everybody agree in the same way that they're agreeing to the CLA. So that part isn't necessary. But it is worth noting that Audacity is a very old project, and that means that you might not be able to get access to the people to get permission for certain types of code that was submitted. So that becomes a little bit more problematic where a CLA in the future could circumvent that problem. So there's that. Uh, they also, you know, they make some comments that I think are kind of weird in the sense that they say that, um, for example, we wish to make Audacity available to everyone, which means releasing it on all platforms and through as many distribution channels as possible. Unfortunately, some platforms have policies or technical processes that make it difficult or impossible for Audacity to exist on them while it is licensed solely under the GPL. For example, Apple's App Store on iOS and macOS is, is, uh, is, uh, is, is an example of this, which is the reason that VLC Media Player was removed from the store back in 2011, though VLC returned to the App Store later, just not under the GPL. Now that's true, but the way that VLC handled it, instead of replacing the GPL, they just added a dual license of the MPL, which made it compatible so they could just do that. You know, there's option. There's more than just one option. And also they say that the CLA provides the ability to release Audacity under multiple licenses, which will enable us to release it on the App Store, which will st- still while still making the code available under the GPL. This is true. 
And you could do that. And you could also just make it even PL. You know, there's those things. So, and there's another reason that they give, they say that we will, we will likely offer separate cloud services that Audacity users can take advantage of if they choose to do so. And that's an, a good point and also a bad point because the GPL allows you to do this. The AGPL doesn't. The AGPL means you have to um, have the source code of the service open. But if you're not using the ABTL, ABGPL, which they're not, you can already provide proprietary cloud services using Audacity code. So a CLA is not needed for that specifically. So while I do say that there is a reason for the telemetry and there is some rationale for the CLA that kind of makes sense, there are some questions here and there. And because it's happened so many times, I think that's the reason why this backlash happened. So just to be clear... I am not a lawyer by any stretch of the imagination, so it is safe to say that my comments should be taken with a mountain of salt, not just a grain of salt. However, the timing of this happening isn't going to sit well with a lot of people. I know what will happen. I mean, I don't know what would happen because I guess we'll just have to wait and see overall, but I will admit that it does feel a bit sketchy to me because, I mean, they keep making the decisions over and over after receiving backlash multiple times. After 21 years of being a darling in the open source community, Muse Group acquired Audacity in May of this year, and in just two months, they've already made three scandals. I mean, I don't know. It's 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 an interesting topic, and I'm curious to see what you think about it in the comments below and on the DLN Forum as well at dlnforum.com, dlnforum.com, because it is very interesting, and obviously, my opinion is you know, limited in the fact that I'm not a lawyer or any of that stuff. So I'm just providing as I cover it. But I'm curious to see what you think in the comments below and on the forum. And uh, maybe I'll do a more in-depth video about this to talk you about like what options you have as a user, because there are many options. For example, there is a fork called Tenacity that is created as a fork to remove the telemetry and that sort of stuff. But there's other things you can do like uh, Flatpak, you can turn off the networking for Flatpak. You can, you know, use your distributions version that will likely have the telemetry removed automatically. Uh, but you know, we'll save save that for another time. If you'd like to learn more about this topic, I'll have links, a lot of links, in the show notes. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on the show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the show and the channel, we have multiple ways to contribute via PayPal, Patreon, sponsors, and many others. You can learn more by going to tuxdigital.com contribute. And if you become a patron, you can join me during the live streams in the recording stadium to discuss all the stuff between topics and just hang out every week after the show in the patron-only post-show if you'd like to do that as well. And you can also order the Linux Everywhere t-shirt by going to dealinstore.com. This is a shirt that I designed to convey the message that whether or not you know Linux is there, it probably is. Because it probably is. The Linux is Everywhere t-shirt is available at dealinstore.com as well as This Week in Linux. You know, you can check that out as well. This Week in Linux shirt as well as uh, hats, mugs, hoodies, uh, stickers, uh, backpacks, aprons, so you can twill while you grill, and so much more is available at dealinstore.com. 
And also, while you're there at Destination Linux, uh, the destinations.network website, check out all the other cool stuff on DLN. There's the Destination Linux podcast, there's Hardware Addicts, there's the Pseudo Show, there's DLN Extend, and so much more. Check it out at destinationlinux.network. And also, if you'd like to support the channel and the show with no additional cost to you, you can use our affiliate links by going to tuxdigital.com slash affiliates. There's stuff for Humble Bundle, Amazon, and a bunch of other stuff. So check that out, tuxdigital.com slash affiliates. And also, if you'd like some, uh, you know, check, you want to check out the show in a live session, you can do so every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern or 1700 UTC, and you'll be able to you know, hang out in the live chat as we discuss all the Linux news each and every week at dealinlive.com. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Snell with the Destination Linux Network. And as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux. And I'll see you next week for another episode of your weekly source for Linux good news. <laughs>